All right, grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles. We're going over to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, just grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, you're going over to page 810. We're going over to Matthew chapter 5. We'll read it in a moment. Um, I love to watch fail videos. Anybody else? You guys know what those are? There's something really satisfying about watching other people fail. So fail videos basically come about because people film themselves doing something awesome, or at least what they anticipate is going to be awesome, and then it doesn't turn out to be awesome. It turns out to be awesome in a very different way, right? They, they fall or they fail or they whatever, and we get to laugh. Um, there's one video that came to my mind as I was preparing this sermon. There was a guy who hid in a trash can, uh, and, and he was wearing a Halloween mask. And as people would walk by, he would jump out and, and you know, kind of do the jump scare thing. And, and time after time after time, people would do kind of the same reaction, you know, kind of this pull away, throw up their hands, kind of shrink a little bit. It's kind of predictable, right? You, you kind of get small in the face of threat. You, you move into a defensive position. You, you jump back and and, and all of that was going great. He was having fun laughing at everybody until one guy, he jumps out, and suddenly his impulse is not to pull away and get small, but to turn and punch him right in the face, like literally right through the mask, and he just shrinks back into the trash can. Um, I don't think that's exactly how he planned that to go, um, but it was funny. Um, you guys, that's a lot how, like how we respond to conflict when we're in it. My brother and I grew up in a home with a lot of conflict, and we had very different responses. Um, and as an adult, I can look back and see uh, really how he and I were wired just differently. My brother was, was wired with a, a much higher level of aggression, and, and he was like a, a, a moth to the flame, right? When, when, when my dad or somebody would, would become angry or aggressive, my brother just moved toward them. Um, not always in conflict, sometimes to, to solve it or to calm it down, or to, but his immediate impulse was to move toward the conflict. Mine was the opposite. I was, I was the duck and cover kid. I was the one that, that learned to, to make myself small, to move into a defensive position, to kind of hide and allow the, the conflict to blow over, right? And, um, and where my brother would rise up and become in some ways... Um, argumentative or contrary in a conflicting situation, I would move away, become passive, and, and um, would, would do whatever I needed to do to help it just move over quickly. But sometimes if I was pushed, um, I would snap. And when I snapped, um, I would respond, but my response was out of control. My response was aggressive, but it was, it was not proportionate to the, um, the situation. And for years, that was my pattern. <clears throat> run away from conflict, avoid conversations that I didn't want to have, um, avoid difficult people, right? I would see people coming toward me that I just didn't like to interact with, and, and I would go out of my way to not even be in the same space with them. Uh, if I knew there were conflicts that were going to be uncomfortable, um, I started avoiding those people and avoiding those places where I would run into those people. Um, I would sit there uh, back in the day when you actually had a phone on your desk, and um, I was the administrator of a school, and I knew I had to make the phone call, and it would just kill me, right? I just, that phone was sitting there mocking me because all I had to do was pick it up and make this confrontational phone call, but it was the last thing I wanted to do. And so I would often um, avoid it, um, and then sometimes, every once in a while, something would, tr something would trigger, and my response was over the top, uh, and I would come on way too strong. 
You guys, I, I think on this, this compendium, this, this, this from, from avoidance to attraction, we all tend to have a natural bent. Um, we tend to avoid it or we tend to blow it up. And what I want to talk about this morning is how the gospel gives us a new way to approach conflict, a new way to approach these difficult things, because in every relationship there's going to be conflict. In every relationship, there's going to come a point where you don't see eye to eye, where you have different agendas, where, where there's a misunderstanding or, or a misstatement, or somebody mistakenly steps on one of your nerves or intentionally says what they knew was going to hurt you, and, and, and sometimes you're the one doing it to them. Here's the thing, the gospel gives us a new way to do conflict, a way that allows us to, to pluck up the seed of anger so that it doesn't grow into a tree of bitterness in our lives. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 29. Starting in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the, fire, to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never Get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. All right, in Matthew chapter 5, um, Jesus is, in a sense, asserting his authority over the law. There's a series of statements where he says, you have heard that it was said, and he, he quotes something from the Old Testament law, and then he, he comes around and he says, but I say to you. And he never contradicts the Old Testament law. He just gives it a deeper nuance. He, he digs into it more deeply and asserts that he has the proper authority to interpret it, right? So in this case, he's quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, where it says, um, do not murder, right? And in this formula, he, he, he shifts from, from the behavior, do not murder, to the heart attitude behind it. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. Well, I say, don't call someone a fool. Right? In verse 22, there's an interesting statement where he, he says, so if you, um, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother and insults him, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Um, that phrase, insults him, the, the Greek there uh, is, is difficult to translate. It literally says, anyone who calls his brother raka. And raka is one of those words that we don't quite know what it means. Some interpreters would say that it's actually roughly translated as snowflake. We're not quite sure. <laughs> so instead of trying to translate a word they didn't know how to translate, they just said anybody who insults his brother, right? You fill in the insult, okay? Anybody who insults his brother, anybody who calls his brother a fool, anybody who, who adopts this, this attitude... Um, is in danger. So what's he describing? Well, what he's saying is this. Murder's bad, right? We can all agree on that. I don't think anybody in here is going to be arguing for 
the, uh, the social benefit of murder. Uh, murder is worthy of judgment. And what he's saying is, so is the hard attitude behind it. A hard attitude of despising, where we settle into a comfortable place of low-level anger. We quietly assign worth to a person based on our anger toward that person. So here's the thing, we may not call them a fool out loud, but that's our hard attitude behind it. If you're able to expose, when we think of this person, and there may be somebody coming to your mind right now, if we were able to expose your hard attitude and give words to it, it might be something like, they are a fool. They are raka. Something worth less than people I value. Something worth less than people I like. So we may not call them a fool out loud, but we do it in our hearts. And Jesus says, this is the sin of murder. This is the sin of murder. Here's the thing. Every decision is made up of hundreds, thousands of micro-decisions. You know what I'm saying? Like, like once you've made a big decision, you've made like, like hundreds, if not thousands of decisions to get you to that place. And murder begins with the micro-decision of defining somebody by your anger and becoming comfortable with despising them. Because in that place, you're reducing their value to nothing or something worse than nothing. You ever get a, uh, a tree growing in your yard where it doesn't belong? Anybody? I've got a couple of those, or I've got three. <clears throat> Two that are growing right next to the foundation of my house, one on one side, one on the other. They were behind bushes. I didn't even know they were there, right? I didn't even notice them until they were about 12 feet tall and poking out behind the stuff that was the, the, the shrubbery that was there, and I'm like, oh, I have trees there. Another one grew in my backyard, like right next to this tiny little retaining wall, but, but it's a retaining wall nonetheless, and, and there it is, right? So by the time I notice it, it's about six feet tall. It was growing up through some of our plants there. They're really a pain, <laughs> right? What do you do with those things? Well, you cut them down. But what happens when you cut them down? Well, they grow back, right? So you cut them down, and you pull out a little hatchet, and you, you hack them up as much as you can, hoping that's going to, it doesn't work. There's only one way to get rid of those things, right? You've got to dig out around the roots and then pull them up. It's a hassle. It's a lot of work, which is why I still have those three trees <laughs> growing in my yard, right? But how did it get there? Well, it got there when a seed fell in the soil, and I didn't notice it, right? Here's the thing, you guys. The whole tree is in the seed, it just needs time and a place to be planted. Like a seed is a tree in its earliest stages. Despising someone is the seed form of murder. Murder is in it. It just takes time and the right situation to develop it. So Jesus is saying it's not enough to not murder. It's not enough, right? That's not good enough to just look at the full-grown result of, of this heart attitude um, to allow the seeds of anger and bitterness to grow in your life. 
but to keep them pruned back enough that you never actually kill somebody, right? You just keep pruning it back. You keep, you keep trying to keep it in control. You, you keep trying to make it shorter, but it's still there, right? That's, Jesus is saying that's not good enough. That, that's, the goal isn't just to not murder. The goal is to not have the seed growing in your heart to begin with. The key is not to prune it or cut it back. The, the key is to uproot it. And, and what Jesus is saying here is you need to dig it up as soon as you know it's there. You need to dig it up as soon as you know it's there. Take a look at verses 23 and 24. 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, that would be the altar in Jerusalem, the actual altar at the temple, there with a sacrifice. Like, this is significant stuff. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift, right? So like you're at the, you're at the temple, man. You're, you're offering your sacrifice. And right in the middle of it, you remember, somebody's got something against me. He's like, leave it. Right there. Drop it. Go and seek reconciliation. Before you seek reconciliation with God, seek reconciliation with your brother. This is more important than even offering your sacrifice on the altar. It'd be as if Jesus was like, hey, Steve, if you're in the middle of your sermon and there remember that someone has something against you, leave your sermon half-preached and go and be reconciled. That would be awkward for you and for me, right? But that's what he's saying. It's that important. Don't think this is of lesser importance. Don't think that, that preaching the Word of God is more important or your sacrifice is more important or your job is more important or your busy schedule is more important or, 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 or Netflix is more important. This is of first importance. Leave and go take care of it. I want you to notice that in this text, he goes from talking about your anger to someone who has something against you. Notice he doesn't say, and there remember you're angry at somebody. He says, and there remember that somebody has something against you. Why? Because in some conflict, you allowed your anger to come out. In some difficult situation, some difficult conversation, in in some awkward space, you allowed your anger to come out through harsh words or, or through body language that was alienating or attitude. Something came out of you that let them know the seed of anger was in your heart. And in letting them know, you planted your seed of anger in their heart. What he's saying is, this is urgent, right? Notice he doesn't say, if the other person's really nice and deserves it, go seek reconciliation. He doesn't say, if it was all your fault and not theirs, go seek reconciliation. He says, no, if you allowed your anger to influence your words, your attitude, your actions, no matter how they behaved, no matter what they said, it's on you. Go and be reconciled. Take responsibility for it. 
immediately. Seek forgiveness and pursue reconciliation. So Jesus is here telling us what we're supposed to do if we have wronged somebody else, no matter how they've treated us, right? We, we can't go there like, well, they did it to me first, Jesus, right? They said something harsh to me, and what was I supposed to do, right? I just said something harsh back. It's really their fault. It was 90% them, 10% me. Well, then take responsibility for your 10%. That's what he's saying. You can't own their behavior. You can't apologize for their attitude, but you need to own yours. And you need to be responsible for your words and your actions and your, your, your attitudes, right? So he's saying you need to seek reconciliation if somebody has, if you have wronged someone. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us what to do if, if somebody has wronged us, if somebody has sinned against us, and, and it's really about the same. Take a look at this. This is Matthew 18, 15. Jesus said this, if your brother sins against you, so in this case, it's not your offense against them, but their offense against you. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So I want you to see two principles here. The Matthew 5 principle is this. If you've wronged somebody, it's on you to go to them, apologize, own your mistakes, own your sin, seek reconciliation. Matthew 18, Matthew 18 principles, if somebody has wronged you, if somebody has sinned against you, it's still on you <laughs> to go to them and seek reconciliation. Notice what's not on the table. Checking out and being passive. Right? There's no option here where you're like, oh, finally, I get to just sit back, be passive, and never confront this stuff. In both cases, whether you're the one that sinned against someone else or someone has sinned against you, when the Spirit of God prompts you, even if you're at the altar of the temple in Jerusalem, if the Spirit of God prompts you right then, it is your responsibility to own what you've done wrong or to confront what they've done wrong, to move into that place of confrontation. Why? Because if he listens to you, look at the verse, if he listens to you, what do you gain? Your brother. If he listens to you, you gain your brother. You guys, this is reflected in our Matthew 5 passage as well. Take, take a look again at verses 23 through 25. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother. All right, brother. You're like, I don't even have a brother. That's fine. He's not talking about your literal brother. All right, he's talking about somebody who is, who is intimately close to you. Somebody who is relationally connected to you, right? Somebody who's a friend or, or a spouse or, or even a child or a coworker. Somebody that is in your realm of intimacy, right? doesn't mean that they're as close as others, but, but they are connected to you in some way, right? You remember there that your brother, your, your friend, your spouse, whoever has something against you, leave your gift there on the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Jesus is talking about the same person. He's talking about the same situation. But he changes 
the language, right? He's talking about your brother, your friend, your spouse, somebody that you are intimately and personally aligned with who has become your accuser. All right, this is talking about both their heart position and yours. In their heart position, when the seed of anger is sown and they've been offended by us, they have an accusation against us. And whether we like it or not, whether they're a jerk or not, or whether they started the argument or not, their accusation against us is justified. Because we're the ones that are responsible for our words, our actions, our attitudes. They are our accuser. They have an accusation against us. They have a reason to be angry. But it's also how we see them. We no longer see them as our brother as our friend, as our spouse. We see them now as our accuser. When we allow that low-level anger, that despising of the other to germinate and take root in our hearts, it turns our brothers into our enemies. It turns our intimate allies into our accusers, our friends, into threats. The Greek word for accuser, this one's not going to be a joke, this one's real. Uh, the Greek word for accuser is um, antidikos. Anti, you know that, that means against. Dikos is the Greek root that means righteousness. This is somebody who stands against our righteousness, somebody who stands against what we think makes us right. You guys, sometimes people are enemies not so much because they've done something horrific, but because they're a threat to what we think makes us right. They remind us of something about ourselves we don't want to be reminded of. They bring things out in us that we don't want to admit is there, so we blame them instead of taking responsibility for ourselves. We see them as antidikos, as those that are against or fighting against what makes us right, and we desperately want to be right. They make us feel weak when we want to be strong. They make us feel broken where we want to be whole. They make us own things about ourselves that we don't want to own. And so we define them as antidikos, as the accuser. We put it on them. And our hard attitude closes down and we start despising them. Not as much because of what they've done, honestly, as because of what we have to face in ourselves to deal with them. You turn your friend into your enemy because you can't stand to feel weak or shamed or wrong. You guys, listen. <clears throat> I've said this each of the previous weeks, and I'll say it again. Most of the time you're angry, it's telling you something more about yourself than the person you're angry at. Most of the time you're angry, it's telling you more about you than the person you're angry at. There's a reason you're angry. There's a reason that you're responding in this moment, right? If somebody says something that doesn't matter to you, doesn't threaten your rightness, you don't get angry. You laugh it off or you brush it off. 
But when says something says something that, that, man, it just has a way of hitting that nerve, right? It has a way of touching that area where you just can't afford not to be right. And it sets you off. That's telling you something more about you than them. And it's worth paying attention to. Because in that spot, you're protecting um, your image of yourself and blaming them because they're making you question it. You might even be protecting something sinful about yourself. And you're blaming them because they're pushing you to have to deal with it. And that's why, guys, most of our anger, and by most, I pretty much mean all, is self-destructive. It is self-destructive. We don't like what they have to say. We don't like the way they make us feel, so we despise them. We call them fools in our hearts. And this allows us to both discount their words and their worth. And we protect ourselves from the very change we need. We protect ourselves from the very growth that God is trying to bring us into. We deny the power of grace. And when we do this, you guys, we're the ones who are diminished. We may harbor our anger toward them. We may start telling our stories about them. We may build our case against them to diminish them and minimize their voice. But all of that rhetoric does nothing to them. It does something to us. And what it does is really unhealthy. Because that seed is starting to grow into a tree. And the tree of bitterness saps all of our joy takes all of our energy, robs us of our relational capacity, and makes our brothers into our enemies. You guys, listen, there's no greater treasure in life than intimate relationships. There is no greater treasure in life than intimate relationships. You can have all the money in the world. If you've got no one to share it with, you are lonely and broken. There is no greater treasure than intimate relationships. Nothing enriches your life more than a good friend. Nothing enriches your life more than an intimate ally, somebody who knows you and loves you, who sees your brokenness, somebody who you have worked through the mess with. And if you are reconciled, you gain your brother. If you are reconciled, you gain your brother. So, some principles for navigating conflict in the power of the gospel. Some things that come out of these passages that I think will help us as we are dealing with uh, difficult confrontational situations. First of all, I think we see a principle. You need to address conflict quickly. You need to address conflict quickly. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry, but do not sin. We, we sin, right? That initial impulse of anger in and of itself isn't necessarily sin. It may just be a natural response, right? But, but when we allow that anger to sit, when we nurse it and hold it, and we plant that seed in our hearts, which takes time, we are moving into sin. The seed of hurt and shame can quickly take root and grow into a tree of bitterness. 
and it happens incredibly quickly. Don't allow the seed to take root. Immediately, while you're at the altar, if the Spirit of God prompts you, act on it. When you become aware, man, this, my brother has sinned against me and I have this seed of bitterness starting to grow in my heart, go and talk to them. Deal with the conflict quickly, as soon as the Spirit prompts you, as soon as you know it's there. You need to deal with it. Now, for some of you, you're like, Steve, that's a whole lot easier said than done. I hate conflict. I hate it. All right, we're going to talk about how to do it in a minute. Second, don't spread the anger. Don't spread the anger, right? You're told to go talk to them, not 15 of your closest friends and allies, right? Go talk to them. In fact, Matthew 18 says specifically, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Very specific. Keep the circle of confidentiality protected. If you've sinned against someone, go talk to them. If someone has sinned against you, go talk to them. Don't go to your grumble groupies. You got your grumble groupies, right? You know what I'm talking about? The people around you who who love to share your offense and echo back to you your bitterness. Can you believe? I can't believe. I can't, I can't either. Do you know what he, I know. And pretty soon you're just fertilizing the seed. Don't go to your grumble groupies who will share your offense and make you feel self-justified in your anger. And don't go to your prayer group who are just spiritualized grumble groupies. We're all sanctified like, oh, you guys, I have this prayer request. So-and-so is a jerk. They sinned against me. And let me tell you the 15 ways that they sinned against me. Oh, that is so sad. Bless their heart. That is so sad. We should pray for them. And really, we just need to pray for you. Let's not even pray for them. Pray that you'll have the strength to endure. You know what I'm saying? Like, we just get all sanctified in our grumble groupiness. We, we, just, we just echo the hurt. I'm not, asking, I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for prayer. Because believe me, you're going to need prayer but do it in a real way. All right, you guys, I have a really difficult conversation I need to have, and I don't want to have it because I'm a coward. Will you pray that I have bravery? <laughs> That's a prayer request. Confess your weakness to those that will support you and pray for you, not theirs. Confess your need, not theirs. And in so doing, as they pray, they'll be praying about the very thing you actually need. You know what I'm saying? They'll actually be praying about your actual need. Here's what happens when we go to our grumble groupies, you guys. We, we're planting the seeds of our bitterness in other people's hearts. And what ends up happening, it doesn't help you to have people patting you on the back and echoing your hurt. That doesn't help you, but it hurts them. Because a month later, you're back with your grumble groupies, and you're like, hey, I'm going to lunch with so-and-so. And they're like, What? They're such a jerk. They did this and this and this and this to you. And they can spell it back to you in all this detail. And you're like, oh, no, 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 that was all a misunderstanding. We're all good now. Well, I'll never forgive them. 
See, you go through the process of reconciliation. They don't. The seeds of bitterness you planted in their heart have no way of, to move toward reconciliation because it wasn't their offense. So what you've done is you've just planted bitterness in your friend's heart. Don't do that. That's not friendship. So don't do it. It doesn't help. It only hurts. So keep the, the circle tight. Protect the confidentiality. Don't spread the hurt, right? Third, cover yourself with the humble confidence of the gospel. Cover yourself with the humble confidence of the gospel. Some of you are like, Steve, I have no idea. I've got this thing, man. This person hurt me. I don't know that I can go talk to him. I don't know that I could do that. Steve, I, I said something really stupid in a fight. And I know I hurt their feelings. But part of me still feels so self-justified in what I did and what I said. I, to go to them and apologize, they're just going to use that against me. They're just going to make me feel weak. They're, they're just, how, how am I supposed to do that? Listen, this is the secret to doing gospel-centered conflict. This is how the gospel enables us and empowers us to do conflict different from how we would do it naturally, how we would do it in our sin or in our flesh or in ways that, that cost us relationships, right? It's a way of unleashing God's power in our relationships, unleashing the power of grace, unleashing the power of the gospel so that conflict becomes a catalyst for growth instead of walls on which our relationships fall and then die. So how do we do this? When they say things about you that you don't want to hear, when they insist on saying things that aren't true about you, <laughs> or worse, are. When you know that they know which triggers set you off, and in their hurt and their anger, they're happy to flip them. That's when you need the gospel. That's when you need to put on Christ. That's one of the most beautiful metaphors in the New Testament. Put on Christ. Seriously, what we're talking about is an act of faith where you basically say, I'm going into this conflict with Jesus covering me. I'm going into this conflict covered in Christ, in, in his identity. And what he says is true about me. And what he says to me. I'm going into this, this conflict as a, as a step of faith. Knowing that I am new and different in Christ. President Reagan had a nickname during his presidency. He was called the Teflon Man. Teflon is a non-stick material that was revolutionary in the 80s. And so it was kind of witty, calling the Teflon Man. Uh, but it basically, his political opponents were so infuriated because they couldn't throw anything at him that would stick. It just slid right off. He had this way politically of, of every, every problem, every whatever, it just would, would slide right off, right? Well, here's the thing. I think the gospel gives us the ability to have this kind of protection in the midst of conflict. When, the, when, when we allow the gospel to cover us, 
when we push into the gospel for it to define us, when, 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 we, when we allow it to speak truth into our ears and embolden our hearts and humble our pride, it allows us to do conflict in a revolutionary new way. I mean, listen to me. Jesus says, you're a sinner, but I love you anyway. Right? Week one, when the tax collector was in the temple and his face was downcast, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? He knew desperately his own brokenness and his own need. And God's grace met him, right? Because God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And so God met him in that humility. When the tax collector went home from the temple, he left justified by God. He left full of joy because God's grace met him in his place of need. He was both humbled because he was a sinner in need of grace and exalted because God loved him anyway and exalted him and gave him the very thing he was asking for, right? So when we, when we say, man, I am a sinner, but God loves me anyway, what that does is it gives us both humility and confidence, it allows us to be humble. When someone says, hey, Steve, you're a sinner. I'm like, I know. It's worse than you know. You've seen some of it. There's a lot more. Right? Humility allows you to, to put down your defensiveness, your need to prove yourself, your need to defend yourself, your need to protect yourself. And I'm not talking about protect yourself from actual abuse. I'm talking about protect yourself from, from, from people that might say things that wound your pride. It allows you to hear things that are hard to hear and take ownership for things you've done. Because, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm a broken sinner, which means I'm going to disappoint you at times, and I'm going to need to take ownership for that. I'm a broken sinner, which means that there are going to be times that I say stupid things that hurt your feelings, and I need to take ownership for that. I'm a sinner, which means sometimes I'm going to be really selfish, and I'm going to willfully put my interest above your own. And I need to take ownership for that, right? The gospel gives me the humility to own the fact that, that I'm a sinner, that I did this, that I said this, that I made you feel this way. Yes, I'm a sinner. I can admit it, own my mistakes, own my sins, own my offenses. And you know why I can do that? Because I'm emboldened by the love of God. Even though I'm a sinner, I am loved. Even though I'm a sinner, I'm not defined by my sin, nor am I limited by my sin. Right? I am not what I've done. I am who he's declared me to be. That allows me to have the courage to say, yes, I did this, but it doesn't define me. And it doesn't define the future of our relationship because I can change. You know why I can change? Because God gives me the gift of repentance. God gives me in his grace the ability to change, to be loved. And in being loved, to, to not be so sensitive, to not be so prickly, to not be so defensive, to not be so hard to approach, to, to actually find humility. Because I'm loved by God, accepted in Christ, already washed and made clean, it gives me confidence in my humility. It gives me strength. That's that humble confidence. If you attack me, I'm not defined by your attack. I'm defined by what Christ has done for me. If you despise me, I, I'm not defined by your bitterness. 
I'm defined by God's love. The sovereign God of the universe loves me, delights in me, has covered me with the righteousness of His Son. That allows me to be despised by you without becoming angry or bitter towards you because your words don't define me. I am loved, I am celebrated, I am covered in Christ. See, that allows you to own your sin, humbly, and it allows you to call out other people's sin in gentleness. Not as an accusation, not as a way to tear them down, not as a way to hurt them or to make them small so you feel big. It allows you to actually move in, in humility, and say, by the way, your words hurt me. Your action hurt me. You've sinned against me, and let me share with you how. Not as a way to find vindictiveness, not as a way to try to to exact justice, but as a way to seek reconciliation, to give them the invitation to also respond in humility. The gospel gives you boldness and gentleness to say what needs to be said, to hear what needs to be heard, and to do it without bitterness. See, when you, put in, when you put on Christ, you go into conflict for the right reasons. You engage in the right way, in a way that honors God and loves your friend instead of honors yourself and defends your pride. When you put on Christ, you can, you can own your junk and lead out in repentance. I, I first need to begin by apologizing. When I said this, I was unkind. When I did this, I was, I was in sin. I was defensive. I, I felt shame, and in my shame, I, I said things that hurt you. I am sorry. It allows you to lead out with genuine gentleness and humility. And then to also, like a good surgeon, go in with courage and say, by the way, when you said this, this is how it made me feel. When you did this, this is what it did to my heart. You ever been in the middle of a conflict and you actually get to that point of confrontation and you start getting into it and you don't have the courage to finish it? You say maybe half of what needs to be said and you know you didn't say it all? It's the gospel that gives you the confidence in that moment to be a good surgeon and cut it all out. If you leave it, you're just going to have to come back. You're just extending the conversation, right? It is the humble confidence of the gospel that equips you to do conflict well. To genuinely apologize and seek reconciliation, to genuinely share how others have hurt you for the same purpose. When you put on Christ, you can confront others on their junk without defining them by it or despising them for it. And if at the end of the day, after all your best attempts, they won't forgive you or they won't stop sinning against you, there may need to come an end to that relationship. But when it does, you may lose your brother, but you won't lose your peace. You may lose a relationship, but it won't leave a tree of bitterness growing in your heart. There are times relationships need to end. But when they do, if we handle it well in the power of the gospel, we can leave strengthened in the gospel, still open 
to future reconciliation if God would give them the gift of repentance. All right, you guys, I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen. I'll allow you to pray and um, let God speak to your heart. Um, we're going to share communion in a moment. That'll be introduced in a moment. I want to respond, remind you, we have response cards in the seat backs in front of you. We would love to hear from you. If you have prayer requests, concerns, you want more information about the church, whatever, let us know. We'll pray with you. We'll connect with you. We'll sit down and have a cup of coffee with you, however we can serve you. Okay, so fill those out and drop them in the response cards, the response boxes on your way out. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, that when we sinned against you, when we rejected your love, you didn't despise us. You didn't close off all opportunity for reconciliation. Instead, you stepped out in love. You bore the price. You suffered the pain of our rejection that we might once again be able to come near. You forgave us. Father, I pray that you would teach us to love as we've been loved. To forgive as we've been forgiven. To follow the, the way you've modeled to enter into conflict. That it might become a catalyst for growth in our lives. Instead of a brick wall on which our relationships die. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.